the animation podcast, May 23rd, 2005. Go infinity! Go infinity! Go infinity! Go infinity! What's this? Go! Meet me! That's it! Dumbo! Walk on the ice, man! I'm just drawn that way. I'd like to work with you if you don't mind. You will join me for death. Oh, goody. Now it's like this, little britches. And beyond. Hey, everybody. This is Clay. Welcome to show number three of the Animation Podcast. Whether this is your first time here or you're coming back for more, I'd just like to say welcome and thanks for listening. I'll go over some details after the show, but for now, let's just continue with part number three of my interview with Andreas Deja. The one frustrating thing to me was when I started at Disney is that the old guys had all left. They had retired and a couple of them had passed away. Les Clark and uh, Lonsbury had passed away. But the other seven were still sort of in town. Milt was up in San Francisco, but that's not too far away. So I thought, I'll be damned. I'm going to just be a pest, you know, and call these guys or write to them, whatever, and see if I can hang out and ask them all these questions, you know, about their work and all this. And I did. And it worked. Yeah. Over the year, it worked. You know, they were so accessible. I, but I think maybe once they found out, uh, all of them, that, that, that I was genuine, that I was not just a geek, mm-hmm. <laughs> you yeah. know, that I really wanted to find out and learn. They, it took time, you know, and had all these conversations and talks with me. And God, that was so valuable. That was, I can't put that in, into words, how valuable that was, how energizing that was. And just the privilege of spending hours and hours and over and over again with these guys. And then I would fly up north to San Francisco once a year from 1980 on just to spend like an afternoon with Milt. Mm-hmm. He was completely ill. He said, any time, come on up, you know. So you saw him every year. Uh, uh, once a year I would go up. So I did this for about five years. Oh, that's great. You know? uh, Spend an afternoon. We met in Sausalito at this restaurant called The Spinnaker. And uh, I mean, you really have to get your act together because you know you are in the presence of greatness, like super greatness. Mm-hmm. And uh, he knew it too. Yeah, but he was casual. Yeah. You know, I mean, he was very nice and social and, and wonderful. The only time I could see when, um, when he would get a little intense, when, when he was talking about the old days and he would talk about an issue or a problem. His eyes would get a little bulgy and, you know, and he would just get a little intense for a moment. And I thought, ooh, that's the milk I had heard about. (laughs) But he was was great. He was really nice. Uh, He was frustrated at the time, especially in the early 80s, uh, about the studio where it was headed, you know, because he had left on sort of uh, strange terms, you know. He Mm -hmm. didn't like the movies, the last movies he had worked on and... Is it true that he worked a bit on The Black Cauldron? He did do, that was the last thing he did for the studio. They had asked him before anybody did anything on The Black Cauldron for some character sketches. But they should have known better. They had asked him just to come up with something. And you don't do that with Milt Carl. You give him some sketches, some rough stuff, mm. some costume designs, some Ken Anderson, Bill Pete type stuff. Some, some research that somebody had done, you know, said this is sort of the time period, these kind of costumes, you know, just some rough stuff. And then he would refine the hell out of something like this. And that, that's the way he worked. Right. But they didn't give him anything. They gave him maybe some story outlines. But even visually, you had to give Milt something. And yeah. he would say that. He said, I'm more of a refiner. That's, that's how I work. And, and he was. And uh, 
So the stuff that he did for the Black Cauldron, Theron looked like a mix of Peter Pan and Mowgli. Mm-hmm. The girl looked like a mix of uh, Wendy and Slufutsu. You know, all stuff that you'd see in the costumes were not researched, and uh, it, was a little, it was a little bland. Yeah, so o- over all the years, all these great Milk Call characters, they were just, like you said, refined versions of Ken Anderson drawings or Bill Peets, just concepts that he <laughs> beautified, really. Like majorly, yeah. majorly, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's it's interesting to to uh, analyze Milkhard's work method because he needed an inspiration, you know. So when you look at the storyboards for Sword in the Stone, you see what Bill Pete did, you mm-hmm. know, and they're great sketches for continuity, but but they lack a certain refinement you need for animation. Yeah, and that's where he came in and just completely took that to another level always. So yeah, he was over the years, you know, he was the guy who really changed the Disney style. And he would say that even too in an interview. I heard him say that. I, I, I was the Disney style. Yeah, I've heard that. But that's, that's the truth. It is true. He was. You know, you look at the, all, the, all the model sheets, all the Disney model sheets for the features, and about 90% are his drawings. Mm-hmm. It was just an incredible, incredible artist. And Walt was really lucky to have him and the other guys working together. I mean, sometimes you wonder, had Bill Teitler stayed, where would the studio be? And yeah. would have taken it someplace yeah. else? Who knows? I mean, know? he was such a power so early, you know. It, it yeah. was, to me, it's, he's one of the saddest stories in animation. It's just, I love his stuff. And it's just, I wish there was more, you know. And he was around all those years. That's the worst part. He, he was still animating, but just doing, you know, the UPA stuff and all that. The inspiration wasn't there anymore. Yeah. And, the, and the, the group uh, effort wasn't there. You know, it was just a different environment. It wasn't as inspirational to him. You know, if you had Walt, who was always trying to get better stuff out of you, 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 you needed all that stuff yeah. to, to get these great things. So, yeah, it happened to a few artists who left Disney. We should do one on the Nine Old Men, and I can oh, just yeah. tell you what I know about them and what I learned from them. Profound things that, that uh, I'm thinking about now that I didn't understand way back. Just to give you one example, Ollie said this way back. He said, you know what? You shouldn't animate drawings. You should animate feelings. And I kind of filed that away, and then I started thinking about it and not, not getting it. And I was thinking, what, what, what does he mean? You, of course, you draw. You animate drawings, and they're supposed to have feelings, you know, and... But it's a profound statement because it's a, it's a philosophical statement, really, because it tells you that he is thinking about the inside of the character, mm-hmm. which once you know the character so well, that will tell you how to animate it and not the other way around. You don't force the personality onto the character. It's the other way around. So anyway, this takes years to really get, mm-hmm. you know, so many things like that. And so it was just an awesome time to hang out with them. It really makes your job a lot easier when you approach it from that angle. You know, what's the character feeling? And you're right, it just it kind of lays it out for you. It really narrows your options. Everyone acts a different way, but there's only a certain a way a person can express a feeling, you know? Mm-hmm. And sometimes I thought I was expressing a feeling and I was internalizing a character, but when I look at it now, I was not. Mm-hmm. I was using a, a, like an, an acting pattern or a concept, but it didn't really come from within. I guess it's experience, you know, but also to get there, you need, you need to stay critical toward your own work and willing to improve and, and do better. And, you know, because uh, some people think they're pretty good and they just do a certain thing. You know, I think you have to be hungry yeah. for uh, a higher standard. Yeah, it's a hard place to be. For me, I, I don't think I even like anything I do now. You know, I look back two weeks later and I'm like, oh, you know, and two weeks ago I was, you know, this is the best thing I've ever done. Yeah. There'll be a few things over the years, you know, I bet you. Uh, I'm finding this out now when I'm doing uh, lectures. You know, I'm showing clips of things that I worked on. And uh, basically, no, I don't like anything that I worked on. I would like to do it over again now. But then there are bits. Like there's one scene in Prince and the Pauper where I thought if I would show any Mickey scene that I've ever done to Frank and Ollie, it would be that one. It's the one where he's seeing his reflection 
on in the castle grounds. He's getting up and he's just doing a little dance with his own mirror image. And then he loses his step and then bangs into some armor. And I think that's the best Mickey scene that, that, that I've ever done. Mm-hmm. That really feels real, right. the way I analyzed it. So that one holds up. There aren't many like that. <laughs> Most you want to do over. Yeah, it's hard. Talking about the old guys, just I saw Cinderella with Ollie Johnston last week. Even though Ollie is very old now, he was trying to convey to me, you know, I, I look at this now and I'm pleased with some things, but I want to see what the character is thinking. And in going through the movie, I see it sometimes, but many times I don't see it. And to me, it all looks wonderful, whether mm-hmm. it's the Kimball cat or whether it's Frank's stepmother. But to this day, 93 years old almost, still critical, still think where they missed the boat. I was, just in, I was just amazed by that. I mean, that's you know, why his stuff is so good, I think. It, it's like it's, it's, it's hardly or hardly ever good enough. You know, it's never good enough. That's the attitude you have to adopt. Yeah. It's, it's just a joy to look at these things frame by frame. Absolute joy. I mean, it's all there. It's all available. Mm-hmm. When we were kids, it was not available. Yeah. It was in theaters every zillion years, you know, and uh, now we have it. It's all there. So, so look at it, study it, you know, and uh, it's, fun. it's fun studying it. And not just Disney, you know, I love looking at uh, that broad stuff that we studied on Roger Rabbit, you know, I just takes Avery, opens up a whole new world. The, the old Tom and Jerry's, I still love to freeze from. They go so far, mm-hmm. but it's still solid work, you know, it's, yeah. it still works. I just love the Tom and Jerry's. This is a hard question, I think, but is there any, like, one piece of animation that you would say is your favorite sequence or, you know, something that you could just watch forever? Yeah, there are just maybe a handful. Um, one is a scene that is on such a high, it just, it just, I don't know, it just, it just leaves me with this awesome feeling. Um, in Sleeping Beauty, I think you might know which one's coming up, when the prince um, has just fallen in love and he, he tells his father, King Hubert, and he's so happy about it, he picks King Hubert up and he dances with him and... Um, and uh, I actually have a wonderful video clip of Milt Carl talking of how he did that. Really? You know, have that, which I just recently found. Um, it's a wonderful, wonderful piece of animation. But even Milt said about it, he said there was no live action for it because the guy who did the live action, the actor who was actually ended up as a Star Trek actor. He was in the, the, <laughs> the, the original Star Trek. Okay. Uh, but that's what Milt said. And uh, he said he could have never picked up this heavy actor, you know, that was doing the voice for King Hubert. Never. But I did that and... So he did it that way, and it's extremely fluid and beautifully analyzed. It's like music. Mm-hmm. But uh, I'm thinking if I had animated it, to add a sense of humor, I probably would have had him picking up the king and then having a little trouble with all that weight, still trying to do the dance, but, but adding that level. That's, that's what I would have done. Mm-hmm. You know? but, but I still love it to pieces, yeah. <laughs> the way he did it. You know? yeah. And just to, just to add one more, another one of Mills would be the eyelash sequence of Madame Medusa. I just can't get tired of that. Yeah. That moving, the idea of moving flesh on a human face is just unbelievable. Yeah, with just lines. You know. With just lines. And um, you get such an eerie, wonderful feeling out of it. It's something that you think animation couldn't do. That, that would be too subtle. That's live action. Mm-hmm. And there she is doing it. And in a way, it's staged, you know, and the way it's analyzed the feeling completely comes through. And, uh, but there are many, many others. You know, there's a lot of Frank's work that, uh, well, that's a whole other show. I know, <laughs> I know, know. It I goes know. on. I was actually going to say, uh, do you have anything you want to share with your German listeners, if anyone from Germany tunes into this? Uh, 
in Deutschland, äh, vielleicht hätte ich noch eine Nachricht für die deutschen Hörer, äh, wenn, wenn jemand von Deutschland zuhört. Ich bin äh, im Oktober in Deutschland und zwar meine Heimatstadt Dienstlaken will ein Disney-Festival veranstalten. Und zufälligerweise bin ich dann auch schon 25 Jahre bei Walt Disney und wir machen irgendwelche Disney-Wochen in der Stadt Dienstlaken mit äh, Wettbewerben. Ich werde einen Zeichenkurs geben für, für Kinder und Jugendliche, Animationskurs. Und äh, wenn jemand Lust hat, kann er ja dann auf dem Dienstlaken, irgendwie Dienstlaken, Google und so weiter rausfinden äh, von den Aktivitäten. Das wird im Oktober sein diesen Jahres. Schönen Gruß nach Deutschland. <laughs> awesome. I won't ask you what that was. I just trust that it was something interesting. I talked about you and your career. No. No. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, Andreas. It was, okay. uh, it was awesome. I really thanks appreciate it. Thanks for having it. me. Yeah. We'll love to do this again. Okay. Thanks. That concludes part two of the interview with Andreas Deja. I've been asking for your feedback on the show, and I really appreciate your responses. Everything you say will help me make choices that will hopefully make the show better each time. I'll quickly cover some of the ways you can give feedback, comments, or suggestions. Here's how to take part in the show. If you go to the website at www.animationpodcast.com, you can comment on individual podcasts. You can also send me an email at animationpodcast at gmail.com. And the third way to participate is to call the feedback hotline and leave a voice message. The number is area code 206-666-2668. If you want to spell something with that, that's 666 AnM8 or animate. I'm really happy to report that some of you took advantage of the phone hotline and I'll play some of those in a second. I'd also like to add that if you have a microphone for your computer, you can always record your own message and email it to me for the show. Again, all this information can be found on my website at www.animationpodcast.com. There weren't a flood of voice messages, so every time I got a new one, it was pretty fun. This one made me laugh because I got all excited and then I heard it. That's all he said, but at least he called me Boo. Here it is one more time. Boo, hang up. What number? This one is from the mystery caller who didn't leave his name. Hi, I just uh, came across your podcast and I really, really enjoy it. Um, I'm a video game animator and I'm always looking for new information and it's great to actually be able to listen to other animators uh, talk about what they're doing. So uh, I'm definitely going to be tuning in and uh, listening to all the new stuff you have coming up. So thank you so much for putting this together and um, I think it's going to get to be a real big, big thing on the internet. So I'm going to tell all my other animator friends about it. Thanks. And quite a few people contacted me with the following question. Hi, Clay. It's Lou. I just wanted to call and say you're doing a great show. And I had a little question. Uh, I am not an expert when it comes to animation, uh, but I am interested, and that's why I've been listening to your fascinating interview with uh, Andreas Deja. And uh, I heard you guys talking about one, ones and twos, and I was wondering what that actually meant. Hey, this is Chris from the Martini Shot Independent Filmmaking Podcast. Uh, I just finished listening to your second show with the interview with Andreas Seja, and I just wanted to say that it's awesome. I loved it. Uh, my girlfriend is actually an aspiring animator, and she loves your show, too, and we're really looking forward to hearing more. Now, I have a question for you about something you and Andreas were talking about. And you guys were talking about ones and twos uh, in animation, and I'm not sure what that means. Uh, I'm not an animator. I'm a filmmaker. I haven't been able to ask my girlfriend about it, and uh, I wanted to find out from you guys and see if you could 
possibly talk about it for those of us who are non-animators. Keep up the good work, and uh, we hope to hear for, from you again soon. Thanks. Thanks for the great question. I'm glad you all asked, because I want this show to be accessible to anyone. I've answered this one on the site, but I thought other listeners would like to hear it in case they don't get to read my response. My answer is kind of geared toward the non-animators, so all animators out there, if you have anything to add, please go to the site and let us know. So when we talk about ones and twos, we are referring to how long a drawing is held on screen. One second of film is made up of 24 frames, and an animator can make a new drawing for each of those frames. That means one second of animation will require 24 different drawings. We call this on ones because each drawing is seen for one frame. Animators realized a long time ago that they could do half the number of drawings if they shot each drawing on two consecutive frames instead of one, and it would still read as fluid motion. This way they could animate a second of animation with only 12 drawings. When a drawing is held for two frames, it's called on twos. If drawings are held longer than twos, like on three or four frames each, it becomes noticeable and can start to look choppy. Fours, eights, twelves, thirties. Animators will take any number and put an S on the end to describe how many frames an image is on screen. Animating on ones is useful for fast action and very fast dialogue where every frame is needed to show the motion. Animating on twos is nice because it can give the action some snappiness and punch. Most scenes in a traditional, that's hand-drawn, animated movie will change between ones and twos depending on what's happening. Computer animated movies are almost always on ones. Great question, you guys. And here's a couple more calls. Hi, my name is Chris from Whittier out in Southern California. I just finished listening to both uh, the first two podcasts, uh, one after the other, um, with the conversation with Andres, and it was fabulous. Uh, I remember him from a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff that I would see on VHS. Listening to him, it made me remember the times that I adored to be an animator for Disney, and, you know, that was like, you know, all I could think about when I was a young child. Uh, You know, getting older, I got jaded, and you know, did other things like internet and stuff, but I, just listening to it really brought back a lot of the magic. I'm glad there's a podcast like this, uh, and I can't wait for more shows coming down the line. Thank you very much. Hey, this is Brian Cole at Atomic Bear Press. I just want to say how awesome the animation podcast is. I've heard the first two episodes with the interviews with Andre Deja, and as someone who has done 2D animation as well, just would like to do some more in the future. And as an artist, um, it's amazing. Please keep up the good work. Um, if you can, try to grab some of these older guys so we can, you know, hear their knowledge and, you know, trying to find out what makes them tick and not lose that history as well as the new guys, too. So in any case, keep up the good work. Bye-bye. Hey, this is Jim from Manhattan. I think what you're doing here is absolutely fabulous. And it's amazing to hear to hear the voices of Andrea Seha and just people that are your heroes and you know you, you put a face to it but it's it's so great to put a, a voice and just a whole person to it and um it's it's great to hear about the training program that that eric larson was heading up at the time and i was just curious if you thought that that was what contributed or was a big part of the like the four major hits beauty and the beast and aladdin and little mermaid etc and um if that kind of thing still exists Absolutely, Jim. I think the groundwork was definitely laid in the 70s by Eric Larson. He, you know, like Andrea said, he gave up animating so that he could train because they knew that these traditions had to be passed on. And, you know, these guys had been doing it for over 50 years. They were getting old and they were retiring and and moving on. And, you know, these guys that Eric trained, all these people that Andreas named in the second interview and many more, they're all the ones leading in animation today. All these young artists that he trained came up and made all these great movies that revived animation. 
I think had they not created the training program, there's a very good chance that animation as we know it wouldn't exist today. I think it also goes to show that given the proper training and time, every generation of animators can be great and make great films. And that's something we've been experiencing all the way up from Little Mermaid to now. About the music on the show, the theme song was created by our own DJ Sweet Tooth. Thanks, Joe. And the moody music you're hearing in the background was sent in by listener Rex Lee from the Philippines. Thanks a lot, Rex. If you're a musical animator and you want to help out with the show, send in some songs and I'll try to get them in. I've totally appreciated the music that's been sent in so far and I felt bad talking over it like I'm doing now, so I'm going to test out a new plan and this time finish the show with some more music that was provided to me. And one final thing, I really want to thank everybody who voted for the show at Podcast Alley this month. I look at votes as recommendations, so I really appreciate the word of mouth. So for now, I'll close out the show with a song by Bob Davies called Mustard, and I'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you.